following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. People have got sort of mixed opinions on whether they should cover topics like this in, uh, in church. And, um, you know, when, when we did this at St Paul's, it, it very much got largely a positive reaction. Uh, a few people did sort of wonder, you know, is this, shouldn't we be sort of talking about the Bible? And I'm like, yeah, but the Bible sometimes actually spills out into everyday life. And, um, oh, but how often would we cover topics like this? Well, as often as bills come before Parliament that give us licence to kill each other. Um, <laughs> that's how often I'd want to talk on it. Um, and so I've been dragged back into this. My background was in, medic- um, in medicine. Uh, I trained um, in Otago. And uh, during that time, took a year off and actually did a, a master's of bioethics. Um, was kind of interested in the humanities alongside the sciences, uh, and spent a lot of time grappling with um, issues around this. Did a, um, my thesis was on persistent vegetative state, so looking at people who come out of comas but survive for a very long time, sometimes decades, um, completely unconscious, and, and the dilemmas that they face us with. Obviously, euthanasia was a part of that uh, conversation then, uh, and I've done my best to sort of ignore bioethics, uh, and, but got dragged back into it with the Lucretius Seals case. And so since about 2015, I've, um, I've spoken on this uh, a, a number of times, and so you're getting a version of that um, this morning, a version I have tried to trim down. It tends to want to grow and expand, um, but uh, I've, I've tried to cut it down um, to, today, but I have got my timer here, so um, just start pelting me with things if, we, uh, uh, if you're getting hungry. Um, Ruben, you've said enough about Venn. I'm, I'm just going to leave it at that. That's a, that's a great um, and, and succinct uh, summary of Venn. In fact, we should employ you to, to write little pithy uh, summaries for us. We have a, a heck of a time actually trying to summarise what it is that we do. I've got a couple of handouts just sitting um, up on, uh, sorry, just um, little pamphlets sitting on the information desk if you're interested in some of our programmes. I guess in a nutshell, we're trying to thicken up uh, the experience of discipleship and not make it just about the information that we possess but a, a fully formative uh, life experience and to reclaim some of those postures and practices that the church has done for millennia. But I think uh, maybe several generations ago we thought we might have graduated on from and started dropping uh, out of our lives or not placing as much importance on. And so we just do very simple things. We bookend the week with devotions. We uh, have meals together. Um, I just was excited to hear about your group of eight and things like that, just, just the church coming together in informal settings just to enjoy each other's company um, and to have uh, what animates our lives just a natural part of that rather than reducing it down to the times where we're thinking in propositional terms. Um, got to say about, uh, about Ben, we do talk about other topics other than euthanasia too, so you know, go and have a, a look at those um, pamphlets if you're interested. Um, I refer you to... Um, my, my opening slide here is a, uh, um, a title that I gave to a much longer talk that I uh, gave for the University of Otago's Centre for Public Theology. Uh, Centre for, um, what do they call themselves now? Um, Theology and Public Issues, I think is the, the latest iteration of their name. And uh, I gave a talk that lasts about an hour and 15 minutes. That's available up on YouTube under this uh, heading. So I don't Google myself often, but I did last night just to check that that's still up there. Um, so if you're interested in this and you've, you've got a spare hour uh, to spend listening, I, I give a much fuller description um, on that, but it's under the same, uh, same, same um, title of Knocking on Heaven's Door. Um, I have some skin in this game. Uh, this is a picture of uh, Julia and myself on our wedding day, uh, and that's my dad on uh, your right. Um, 
The reason he's uh, got less hair than he normally would, if this photo had been taken a year earlier, we would have had a full uh, head of hair, but he was uh, having another round of chemotherapy for uh, lymphoma, which he'd been battling for six years, six and a half years when this photo was taken, and in fact took his life three months uh, after this photo was taken. So I got to return the favour of him giving a speech at my wedding uh, three months later by giving a, a, um, a speech at his funeral. And we spent the last uh, fortnight at home, camped out at mum and dad's house, all in you know, various squabs and sleeping bags uh, in the bedroom, all of us, five kids with our partners and several grandchildren, about 14 of us in total, uh, as, as dad saw out his, uh, his final couple of weeks. And um, it wasn't an easy time, even for me as the medical person of the family. And um, you know, cleaning your father up and attending to his ablutions is something of a reversal of roles. Uh, for a uh, father and son, but one that I think we managed to make it through with both of our dignities intact. And I'll have a bit more to say about dignity in a moment. In January 2016, I had the solemn privilege of leading the funeral of a friend who had passed away at 36 from a brain tumour, leaving a husband and a two-year-old daughter. And uh, in July last year, um, I had open-heart surgery. That's actually, sorry, July the year before, so July 2016. Um, to repair a, uh, a torn mitral valve uh, in my heart. And that was something of a, a confrontation with my own mortality. I'd been sort of uh, cruising along thinking I was invincible up until that point. And so this latest round of the euthanasia conversation has felt more personal than it did when it was theoretical back doing my master's in bioethics. This time it's felt like I've had more skin in the game. And it's raised some pretty interesting questions uh, for me about what we value and why we value it. Um, more specifically, how do the features of our current cultural moment influence our ability to understand, experience and discuss death well? Should my own understanding be informed at all by my Christian faith? And if my Christian faith does inform my understanding, does that then disqualify me from being able to participate in the wider discussion as a number of politicians and journalists have suggested? That Christians should just butt out of this conversation for, because it's, with, it's a conversation for grown-ups and adults to have uh, without dragging your superstitions into the conversation. I won't be reading long passages from the Bible this morning, but hopefully you'll be able to see as we go uh, along that this has very much been an, uh, an, an opinion and, and positions that I hold uh, have, in my opinion, come <laughs> because I've soaked myself uh, in what I think biblical positions on a number of things are. And so I'm hoping that what I share this morning lines up uh, with a, uh, a, a, the Christian tradition and with what Scripture would say. I want to respond uh, to the main arguments for euthanasia. Uh, so three main things, as I've looked at the, uh, at the material on this, there are three main reasons given for euthanasia. They tend to be pain and suffering, uh, dignity and autonomy. And you'll see on your handouts, I've given this handout for a number of reasons, so that you can drift off and come back uh, to where we are, uh, so that I can actually go a little faster if I need to in places and sort of skip over and, and leave you to sort of um, uh, follow up on that. And if, at the end, if I'm really having to scamper, I might just jump to the end um, and, and wrap things up. Uh, but there's actually been something of an evolution in the way that these have been argued, even in the bills. Um, when I was doing this back in uh, uh, first doing my bioethics, Michael Laws had a bill before Parliament. Anyone remember when Michael Laws uh, had put forward a private member's bill? Um, and uh, that was very much um, sort of back then that the main argument was around pain and suffering. 
Uh, but that's actually moved on as uh, our end-of-life cares, uh, palliative care, pain management have, have got better and better. People can't really point to pain as a, as a major way of being able to argue for this, at least not in great numbers. Uh, now, there are very difficult cases where, where pain can be, can be hard to get on top of. We lost control of my dad's pain a couple of times in those final weeks, and, and, and that's not... Fun. I, I still feel uh, somewhat responsible for that as the medical one in the family, um, sort of watching Dad uh, in, in some pain and difficulty. But there's been a move to talk about suffering more broadly, uh, suffering of a non-actual, you know, physiological pain variety. Then, as people started to realise, hey, you know, this is actually pretty well under control, it became a dignity uh, issue. Then, so the last uh, Marion Streets with the death with dignity um, bill, and now on this latest one. It's like, it doesn't really matter whether we agree or disagree on pain or suffering or dignity or whatever. It's just a choice now. And so David Seymour's, it's the end of life choices bill. It's now an autonomy question and really doesn't matter whether I can prove that I'm suffering, whether I can prove this or that. It's now uh, come down to just a frank discussion around autonomy. Uh, now, I'm not being... Um, might sound like I'm being a little bit suspicious of those by talking about an evolution of the argument. Um, I just want to lay that out because I want to look at these uh, actually in reverse order. So I'm going to look at autonomy and choice and then at dignity and then I want to focus on suffering. And what I'm going to do, and you'll see this on your handout, is I'm going to have a couple of theological or sort of Christian perspectives, if you like, uh, and then uh, look at some other reflections, maybe not laced with Christian jargon, uh, some arguments you could maybe have around the water cooler at work uh, without having to out yourself uh, as a Christian or at least not having to answer the call. Well, of course, you'd say that because um, you believe in the Bible. So I'm making somewhat of an arbitrary distinction here. Um, there are a lot of uh, Christian commentators, and I'd be one of them, that would actually want to gather everything up and say that our Christianity uh, encompasses everything. But from a jargon point of view, you'll understand why I've uh, separated those out. Now, I've actually got a couple of points under each, and if you're um, good at maths, you'll have worked out that uh, three headings with uh, two responses under theological and, um, and other, that's going to be a total of 12 points. Uh, I'm going to have to gallop uh, through to get, get us there in time, but I will move quite quickly. So we'll look at autonomy and choice, and here we are, someone snipping the uh, strings uh, to the, um, from the puppeteer um, to illustrate the fact that we live in a time where independence and autonomy is about the most highly prized of the virtues one can have in broader culture. It's autonomy, uh, pure and simple. And uh, you'll, you'll see in the um, video that was being played for uh, Thinking Matters where they're talking about tolerance. Now, the thing that's absolutely sacrosanct is that you don't have any say in how I'm to be or how I'm to die. A couple of theological reflections firstly. Um, of course, we can't go very far on this. In fact, our starting point is to start with the, the nature and the consequences of our creatureliness. We are creatures, there's a creator, and there's a world of difference between those two entities. That's where Christianity starts. For the entire history of the church, the phrase right to die would have been a contradiction in terms. Our autonomy has limits and death is one of them. There's also this notion, I think, of a power that's too great uh, for humans to safely possess. So you sort of think Garden of Eden, uh, think Lord of the Rings. Looking up at that slide, I'm realising there's a fourth reason for the PowerPoint, and that's that probably only Reuben in the front row here can actually read uh, that. So my apologies for the size of that you know, eight-point font up there. Um, it's the same as what you've got on your, uh, on your handouts. Uh, 
Uh, but you think, think the Garden of Eden, a grasping after something that once you had it, had a power that was too great for Think Lord of the Rings, you know? You want the ring so badly, but once you've got it, you're just not quite sure. It's got a power that you actually can't handle. And I think wanting this is another one of those. We're going to see that when we come to some of the examples in a moment. I think we also need to understand the nature and the consequences of community, that even our individuality has limits. Um, we're called, um, Christians are called, uh, to celebrate and to bear things together. Uh, we're not, uh, you don't see in Scripture an exaltation of us as individual nodes, just out to do whatever we want to do. Uh, we're called to do things in community. A couple of other um, reflections, uh, moving to things perhaps more water-cooler-friendly water um, arguments. We are more connected than we think we are. John Donne wrote in uh, 1624, No Man is an Island, his famous poem about death. Picking up on that concept, UK journalist Douglas Murray has observed, We do not live on islands of absolute solitude. What you choose to do with your body might very well have an effect on what someone else does with theirs. Sometimes we limit our, our autonomy to actually protect ourselves and to protect others. If you listen to some of the um, disabled voices uh, on, on this, people from the disabled community talking about this, they'll, they'll actually say they need the law to stay where it is to protect them through some dark times. Because this would be an, op an option that they would feel sorely tempted uh, to take if the law were to change. Ask people who work with suicidal youth. I was on a panel that Mike King uh, was involved with, and he, he's passionate on this. He works uh, with suicidal youth, and he's just outspoken in being against this bill because of the mixed message that it sends to youth. Simon O'Connor got himself into trouble, you might remember, last year by drawing uh, some parallels between euthanasia and suicide. Imagine that. It's, it's possible to draw some parallels between Suicide and assisted suicide. Who would have thought you could even draw a parallel uh, there? But what got lost in all the outrage, and I appreciate that there is nuance and difference, but I think one of the points that Simon O'Connor was trying to make was that it doesn't matter whether you or I can see a difference between euthanasia and suicide. It doesn't matter whether Simon O'Connor can see a difference. What matters is whether a depressed and suicidal 14-year-old can see a difference. And once we've widely legitimised suicide as a solution, whatever term it or form it takes, we don't get to contain the message as to who then thinks it's a solution for them. That toothpaste is out of the tube. Another question we want, might want to consider, and several commentators are starting to ask, what's the effect actually going to be on grandchildren? When you often hear commentators, and they're usually um, often elderly people saying, hey, look, this, was a, um, this is a, a choice, I should be able to make this, uh, you will often see family members uh, interviewed. Invariably, they are people in their 30s and 40s. Mom or dad was always an independent person, and this should go ahead. But what commentators are saying is, hang on a second, there's another generation sitting under them uh, that don't have the same kind of faculties of logic or rationality to actually draw their own conclusions. And perhaps just as we drew uh, some erroneous conclusions about the minimal effects that divorce would have on children of that age, we're going to make a similar mistake here. That a 8 to 14-year-old might make some, draw some crazy conclusions about the role they played or did not play in a grandparent uh, choosing a formalised way of ending their own life. 
Certainly it's worth remembering the words of Dame Cicely Saunders, who's considered the founder of the modern hospice movement. She says, how we die remains on in the memory of those who live on. Second thing I want to say about autonomy is that it's a very fluid concept. That uh, clicking for me. Um, it's open to coercion, actually. Uh, making choices isn't this kind of wonderful, um, objective sort of thing for life that we think it is. If any of you have gone through uh, vulnerable times, uh, Hunger, it was great to hear your story um, this morning. Uh, I've spent my own time uh, in recovery, not as long or courageous as yours, but I'm sure if we caught up afterwards for a cup of tea, um, we would find ourselves agreeing that you feel pretty vulnerable in those times. Uh, what only months ago would have been quite a kind of resolute and confident discharging of one's autonomy can get shaky quite quickly. Um, most of the vocal calls, the most vocal calls for euthanasia, have actually come from those whose autonomy is and always has been strong. Their autonomy hasn't yet uh, been compromised by age or illness or depression. In an August 2015 article for the Wall Street Journal titled A Doctor-Assisted Disaster for Medicine, Professor William Toffler wrote about his experiences in Oregon where they've had this um, change of law for quite some time. He wrote this, Since the voters of Oregon narrowly legalised physician-assisted suicide 20 years ago, there's been a profound shift in attitude towards medical care, new fear and secrecy and a fixation on death. Well over 850 people have taken their lives by ingesting massive overdoses of barbiturates prescribed under the law. Proponents claim the system is working well with no problems. This is not true. As a professor of family medicine at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, as well as a licensed physician for 35 years, I've seen firsthand how the law has changed the relationship between doctors and patients, some of whom now fear they are being steered towards assisted suicide. In one case, a patient with bladder cancer contacted me. She was concerned that an oncologist treating her might be one of the death doctors and she questioned his motives. This was particularly worrying to her as she obtained a second opinion from another oncologist who was more positive about her prognosis and potential treatment options. And here's the point which I've bolded that Toffler makes. Whichever of those consultants was correct, such fears were never an issue for, for, for before. Little old ladies living alone never had to worry whether doctors were for them or against them or worry that, you know... Um, they may be getting a good opinion or a bad one. That's been introduced into the system, and once it's introduced, you don't just get a chance to, uh, to withdraw it. Finally, it would be impossible to talk about the fluidity of autonomy without also saying something about the complexity and the potential dysfunction of families. Uh, my experiences in medicine, church, and uh, talkback radio, I hosted talkback radio for five years on a Sunday night, convinced me that unfortunately most of us underestimate the prevalence and the severity of family dysfunction in New Zealand. Most of the high-profile cases calling for euthanasia or assisted suicide seem to come from very stable and loving backgrounds, but you introduce any one of a number of variables and things can be, very quickly, they can become incredibly complex. Cultural differences, financial complexity, divorce and remarriage, sibling rivalries, past history of physical or sexual abuse within the family. You imagine trying to have conversations about introducing euthanasia into a family when you've got those sort of things lurking in the background. Even previously close and supportive families can experience considerable tension when everyone is having to process the confusion and the grief of a new diagnosis let alone families that haven't enjoyed 
such a stable history uh, coming to a similar um, case. I want to move on now and uh, say something about dignity. A little flick to the next uh, slide. Again, as Christians, we can't really um, begin our conversations with dignity without uh, talk of being made in the image of God, uh, Imago Day. This, again, is pretty front and centre. If you don't know what Imago Day is, uh, you should have been at Festival One two years ago. Um, we believe that dignity is bestowed. Uh, it's not something that we achieve or earn. We bestow dignity on each other. God bestows it on us. We can and should bestow dignity on those around us, whatever the circumstances. Even in the most undignified of circumstances, which I got to see in that few weeks at home looking after Dad, one can bestow dignity. Secondly, I'd want to say that Christianity subverts our natural understandings of just who's dignified and who isn't. We tend to use dignified and sort of like, oh, she's very, very dignified, you know. But the scripture upends that, kind of subverts it, it upends the pyramid. We see special attention being given to the least of these, to the weak, to the poor, to the widow. Uh, we just don't take our cues of what dignity looks like from culture around us. Moving on to other reflections, the first thing I'd want to say is that it can take a, a lot of time to actually adjust to a perceived loss of dignity. When your circumstances change, uh, that takes time. Um, one of the people who's been outspoken on this is Dame Laura Finlay uh, from the UK. And she, when she was out here uh, in 2014, she explained that doctors are constantly having to narrow the gap between a patient's expectations and the reality of their condition. And she sort of talked about this, and I, I really liked it, and so I've tried to show it graphically. Um, this is really... Uh, the way that it sort of looks like um, when a patient presents to you and working as a doctor for uh, five years, mainly in emergency medicine and paediatrics, uh, you've got this kind of gap in expectation. Um, Here's where the patient wants to be and here's where their health currently is. And that that gap has been either come about gradually or there's been something catastrophic that's happened that's produced that change or that gap. But the job of medicine... um, uh, Laura Finlay was saying is to actually close the gap or narrow the gap uh, to actually bring them together now sometimes in the best of cases you're able to do this and actually bring the health up to meet uh, an unchanged expectation uh, oftentimes and this happens the older we get are you having to do this actually no your, <laughs> your knees are always going to be a little bit dicky now so stop going for 20 kilometre runs and just adjust your expectation and we'll try and give you some anti-inflammatories and let's see if we can narrow that gap but it's never quite going to be the same as it was and sometimes and this is what happens as we really start to enter terminal phases of our lives you're having to actually uh, work on that expectation while health can continue to deteriorate Um, the point she makes is that closing that gap takes time It certainly takes much more time than the cooling off periods that are in the bills that have been put before us. Um, David Seymour's one, uh, one before Marion Street's one before that, the one before that. This takes time. This can take take years, she said, for somebody to actually uh, come to terms uh, with changes to their life, changes to what they perceive their dignity to be. Most of us, I think, like to look at our... um, 
Uh, our health is a bit of a pie graph, you know, we've got a full pie graph of health and then we turn 30 uh, and a little slice goes, then we turn uh, 40 and a, another big slice goes. Am I fighting someone on the PowerPoints there? There we go. Uh, and then we have a repair to our mitral valve and <laughs> another slice of it goes and so then other things happen. So we sort of see our health as being kind of pared back and like, oh my gosh, my life was like this and now I'm left with just this small wedge left. She said, working in palliative care, and working in rehabilitation, it can take years for somebody to actually come to terms with it. She gave the, an example of a, a, a young guy who'd broken his neck in a scrum, played front row uh, for a private school in the UK, broke his neck in his, uh, in his late teens, and was brought to them, I think, as a 19... It might, might have actually been once he'd hit uh, university, actually, um, a couple of years in the university, early 20s, I think she remembers saying. And for the year that she was a part of the team looking after him, asking for euthanasia... Um, on a regular basis, and didn't want treatment to be ongoing, wasn't interested really in uh, participating or cooperating with rehabilitation. He'd been paralysed from the neck down uh, and just wanted to die. She said she uh, sort of lost track of him. He was moved to another team, uh, moved geographically, and uh, several years later, uh, she was in the area where she knew he was, looked him up, and uh, he's really keen to have a a catch-up. She went to his house Pretty fearful as she knocked on the door because last time she'd seen this guy, he'd been severely depressed and asking to be euthanized. And uh, she came in, she sort of met him, he kind of comes to the door in a you know, wheelchair, carer um, with him for much of the time, walked into his house. His entire lounge was just bookshelves. He's like, What's going on? She said, well, he said oh, I've discovered books. And she said, Oh, what do you mean? He said, Well, I've, I've been a rep sports team since I was about nine. I never had, I was being shunted from that many practices in a week. Um, my schoolwork very much fell kind of um, second to that. I never really had time to just kind of immerse myself in the world that has opened up to me now that I've had a complete shift um, of, uh, of, of perspective. She said, what had taken that guy years to actually build a whole new life around the section that had been left? Now, she wouldn't want to, and I don't want to downplay the impacts of severe and profound disability. But the point she wants to make is that this can take a really long time, far longer than the cooling-off periods that are, that are proposed uh, in, these, in these bills. Um, second point I want to make on this is that dignity isn't just an individual concept. Once you call a condition undignified, that label spreads to everyone who's got their condition, whether you mean it to or not. And again, listening to voices from the disabled community, they kind of rather tactfully point out that most of you are calling for euthanasia should you ever find yourselves in the kind of conditions that we live with every day. I've got a friend who works for uh, a well-known winery um, in New Zealand. I won't say which one it is, but I'm partial to one of their Chardonnays. And um, about half a dozen years ago, uh, we would catch up quite regularly and they would run these specials and I would go out to uh, the winery and pick it up by the caseload um, until I discovered that every now and again, Countdown would halve the price of it. And so I started buying it there. And I remember catching up with this guy one time and excitingly declaring to him that I'd managed to buy two cases of it at 12 bucks a bottle. And uh, he just exploded. <laughs> and not in a good way. And I said, well, what do you mean? He's like, that's not a $12 bottle of wine, mate. He said, you know, of all the bottles we've produced, that's a $26 bottle of wine. But he said, because they're prepared to make a loss to get you into the, uh, into the supermarket and to kind of 
by a sector of the wine-buying community's <laughs> kind of habits, um, he said they're, they're just get, giving it to you at a price that even I make this stuff and I can't buy it from our store uh, for that. And he said, and here's the bit that really ticks me off. Incidentally, I don't see um, supermarkets uh, giving those sort of discounts anymore. We are talking uh, a number of years ago whether that was just because they've now got that sector of the community, um, that, that uh, kind of amount of the market, or whether the actual, um, uh, I think the alcohol advisory board are probably giving them a bit of a hard time for giving away alcohol at those sort of prices. Anyway, the point he said was this. He said, having bought it for 12 bucks a bottle, you'll never pay full price for it again. And I never did. <laughs> I would just look for it on special every time. I don't want to be too cute with the analogy, but once we give permission for the first person with multiple sclerosis to have euthanasia, we'll never quite look at people with multiple sclerosis again the same way, uh, or with motor neuron disease, or with brain tumours. There'll always be the slight feeling that the price of that got dropped back in the day, and there's an overflow effect whether we mean it to or not. And that's the point that I think the disabled community are tactfully, sometimes too tactfully, pointing out to us. Um, the other thing I want to say on this is that even if we are absolutely sure that we wouldn't do that, no, the price wouldn't change, it would stay the same, I'd have the same amount of dignity and respect for those people, it does change over time. And we don't have to imagine that. We can look to other jurisdictions where we're seeing that happening. Um, there's good evidence from the Netherlands and from Belgium that a society's collective understanding of dignity and value can and does change over time. The law doesn't just change for all of us. The law actually changes us. Um, or to put it in another way, legislation uh, becomes normalisation, which then becomes expectation. Uh, Gerbert van Leunen uh, was a journalist in the Netherlands. Um, he was the deputy editor for a daily Amsterdam newspaper. In 1994, his partner went in for the removal of a small benign brain tumour. Complications resulted in severe disability. Uh, Gerbert rearranged his life to pr provide care at home. Uh, after four years, uh, the partner had to be moved into a care facility, but survived another six years with reasonable quality of life. But what surprised and shocked him were some of the things that were said to them uh, by certain friends. Uh, it would have been better if Nick had died, one of them said at the outset. Another told them when they expressed frustration, you try, choose to go on living, so you've got no right to complain. In other words, you had your choice. You choose, chose to go on. You didn't take the uh, blue, blue pill when you had the opportunity to, so you've foregone your rights to ever have a bad day. He was stunned by the attitude change in his countrymen in just over a decade. He wrote a book in 2015 called Do You Call This a Life? Blurred Boundaries in the Netherlands Right to Die Laws. And he said, once an average Dutchman who thought of euthanasia as one of the crown jewels of our liberal country, I became someone who was shocked by the harsh tone used by the Dutch when they talked about handicapped life. He was so keen to have New Zealanders hear the full story that he made a submission to our Health Select Committee. He flew over uh, from Europe to actually present uh, on that. He appeared on TV's Sunday program uh, and he expressed concern at the constantly wi widening um, uh, that's going on in the Netherlands right now over euthanasia practice. He said, we started with cases of people suffering from physical diseases 
And now we're talking about termination of life for babies with spina bifida. Today we're talking about assisted suicide for elderly people who are not ill but are weary of life. You know, in the past it was easy. There was this obvious limit. Thou shalt not kill. And then we broke that rule. We're still looking for the new limit. We don't know how far we should go. And so finally we come to suffering. Um, and I'm on the, on the home stretch. I want to reverse the order here. Um, but I want to begin by saying that I do find this the most compelling of arguments. I think if you're not moved by stories of suffering, then you want to check your pulse. And if you haven't found yourself um, agreeing that there are cases that are so difficult that one wouldn't be sorely tempted to find euthanasia attractive, then you've just got to imagine a scenario that's a little more horrific that just goes a little, little longer and, and you'll get there. But the point of this is, is that we're not imagining scenarios or even identifying the hardest case scenarios, what we're doing is discussing whether or not we should change the law, and that's a very different thing. So um, I'm wanting to hold and balance that tension between acknowledging that there are extremely difficult cases, uh, and as countries and communities we should recognise them and do the absolute best we can to help people through that time without reverting to a law change that will have the kind of flow-on effects and unintended effects that I'm trying to highlight here. Uh, first thing I want to say on this, and I'm really going to uh, scamper, we've made huge advances in palliative care, advances since I went through med school. And uh, was sitting on panels with palliative care doctors, I was having to amend my own notes all the time when I heard about the changes that are happening. In the rather isolated um, kind of nuclear family uh, way we do family life in the West, most of, for most of us, um, the first death we're going to see up close, as in hour by hour, will be the death of a parent. It didn't used to be that way. You would have been in much closer intergenerational communities where you would have perhaps been at a bedside vigil of a great aunt or a grandparent, or people would have regularly been would have been dying in your community, and you would have been there. But we're, we're rather more private, particularly Europeans, uh, about dying, and so most of us that. Our, our first really close encounter is actually the death of a parent, which means we're not seeing it that often, which means a lot of people's understandings of the dying process is actually quite old, or it's based on an anecdotal snippet here or snippet there. Even doctors don't have a great understanding of this. All doctors aren't created equal when it comes to this. I want to hear from palliative care doctors who are seeing hundreds and thousands of cases, um, not from people who are only seeing one or two. Most people also aren't aware that you can refuse treatment any time you like, and that's not euthanasia. Few people have an understanding, a clear understanding of their rights to actually refuse uh, treatments or to actually say, hey, I don't, I don't want things that are necessarily going to extend my life or um, you know, add um, complexity or, or add um, burden uh, to that. Most people don't understand that fully, and most people, even if they do, uh, can't articulate that well when they're suddenly thrust into the rather disempowering um, kind of uh, environment of a hospital or hospice setting. Um, but refusing treatment isn't euthanasia. And when this is explained, palliative care doctors uh, say that there are very, very, very few cases where people will ask for an active form uh, of ending their life. But that's never going to come out in a... The nuance of that won't come out in a Herald Digipol. <laughs> These things don't actually reduce down very well to sort of thumbs up or thumbs down answers. These are complex, uh, complex issues. 
Secondly, um, suffering is subjective by definition. Uh, the move from pain to suffering has meant that uh, if I'm the one suffering, then if we disagree, then I must be right by definition because it's my suffering. And this is why there are no safeguards that are working in any jurisdiction uh, around the world. You simply can't have subjectivity in a safeguard. Once a right to die is established, that right seeks to universalise itself as human rights tend to do. So it's little wonder that others who are initially outside of the criteria start to ask, what makes your version of suffering unique? Why aren't I able to avail myself of that same service? So among those euthanised in Belgium uh, in the last uh, few years have been deaf 45-year-old twins who are going blind, a 44-year-old woman with chronic anorexia nervosa, a 64-year-old woman with chronic depression, and that was without informing her family. Here's a graph uh, of the cases in Belgium going up. And it's important to note that in this case, the goalposts are moving because the patients themselves want the goalposts moved, not because any kind of draconian doctors are wanting to enforce that on people. This is people themselves saying, um, I want that to be available to me. Canada had only had legislation for a little over a year, and already they have cases uh, before the courts wanting to stretch it from terminal medical conditions to dementia and to psychiatric conditions. And here's that principle at work again. Once we've legitimately... Uh, once we've widely legitimised suicide as a solution, whatever form it takes, we don't get to contain the message as to who wants to take it up as a solution for them. Theo Bohr is a professor of ethics and a member of the Euthanasia Review Committee in the Netherlands, uh, and here's what he had to say. In 2007, I wrote that there doesn't need to be a slippery slope when it comes to euthanasia. Good euthanasia law in combination with the euthanasia review procedure provides the warrants for a stable and relatively low number of euthanasia cases. Many of my colleagues drew the same conclusion, but we were wrong, terribly wrong in fact. Beginning in 2008, the number of these deaths showed an increase of 15% annually, year after year. Euthanasia is on the way to becoming a default mode of dying for cancer patients. The Dutch Right to Die Society shows no sign of being satisfied even with these developments. They won't rest until a lethal pill is made available to anyone over 70 years who wishes to die. Some slopes truly are slippery. Goes on to say, I used to be a supporter of the legislation, but now I take a completely different view. So again, just flicking onto their graph, that's what it's done uh, in the Netherlands. And so I think the burden of proof rests with David Seymour and others to tell us why we shouldn't be extremely alarmed by such frank turnarounds by professional people who were at the heart of supporting a law change in their own countries and who now, a decade later, are saying, don't follow our example. Close with a couple of uh, Christian reflections on this. The first is that I think we need to acknowledge um, that uh, we need to be sympathetic to this argument, and Christians, myself included, have said some pretty unwise and uncaring things in this space about suffering and the role of suffering that it could or should play in one's life. I think we've got to be really careful. We can certainly talk about that in our own lives, <laughs> what, how God might use suffering and turn all things together for good, but don't put that in a letter to the editor. Um, Gilbert Melinda uh, has written on this. Uh, that we should not, of course, pretend that suffering in itself is a good thing, nor should we put forward claims about the benefits that others can reap uh, from their suffering. 
Uh, we should be moved by the extremely difficult cases. You wouldn't think that we would need to say that sort of thing, but um, apparently we do. And lastly, and I close on this, are we as Christians prepared to really put our money and our time and our emotions where our mouth is and really care for the dying? Paul Ramsey has written a challenge uh, for us as Christians to what he calls to care, but to brackets, to only care. Uh, and that's refusing to overtreat on one, one hand, which he thinks is uh, a form of abandonment, or to actually say, yeah, you're right to want to die and provide euthanasia, which he says is just another form of abandonment. So I quite like the phrase, to only care, <laughs> but to care well and to care deeply. The thing about that is that um, that sort of caring is going to cost us. Um, I was actually quite moved uh, to hear of the, um, uh, the thawing of the son-in-law, mother-in-law relationship that we heard from Hung. And uh, actually um, almost tearful to, to hear that uh, mum-in-law would stay around until midnight uh, typing up assignments. Um, that's actually pretty special. Uh, several years ago, I was um, driving past a rest home in my area and just had this thought flash into my mind that I should volunteer to something like a rest home uh, to read, read to people who aren't able to read for themselves any, anymore. Um, we've got uh, at least two rest homes that I know of within a 5K <laughs> sort of trip from my house. Um, I love the sound of my own voice, so it would be win-win. Um, <laughs> but the thing is, I haven't done it. I haven't actually got off my, got my A into G and, and, gone, and gone and done it. Um, now, I'm not saying that there's someone sitting in a rest home in Hillsborough wanting to kill themselves because Sam Bloor hasn't read them a story, but Sam Bloor's just been too busy to even do a small thing by way of caring and making someone's life uh, a little easier to bear, a little more tolerable, a little less lonely. Um, so my track record on this isn't good. I'm not sure whether we're going to see a law change or not. Uh, I'm... I'm actually a little pessimistic. I think if not this round, then probably the next. There are people that are calling for this uh, so loudly that eventually we will probably go here. But I, found my, I find myself wondering, wouldn't, wouldn't it be incredible if the law did change and euthanasia was allowed, but the Christian church so mobilized herself to care that no one wanted to take the offer up? Now, that's a lot easier to say in a statement than it is to mobilize and do. But I think we've got a challenge before us. Um, that level of care uh, is going to cost us. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.